Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. The Cooper Talk studios are moving. That's right. After 15 years in L.A., I am headed back to the East Coast on May 1st. Uh, me and the lovely Joanna decided that, you know what? I can do Cooper Talk anywhere. I can do my freelance PR work anymore. Our rent here is twice as much as her mortgage that she rents her place out for back there. So we said, you know what? LA is getting too crowded. Burbank, the town I love, just built the world, North America's largest Ikea. Okay, I drove down the street Saturday. The street that I usually just pop right down was backed up five blocks deeper. And it's sad to say, and this is what makes me upset, is there's starting to be a really bad homeless population in LA. And I think there's going to be an uprising in a, in a few months. I swear to God, it's like these tent cities are popping up everywhere. And it's making me sad. So... I want to leave L.A. A few people I know have left L.A. They said when they got back east, they just felt the stress disappear. So anyway, we have a, we have a great show. We have a guy who's from back east originally. And uh, I used, I saw his band when he with Cinderella. I saw him at the at the Galaxy in Somerdale. My guess is Jeff Lamar. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. How are you? Good. Now, you, you live in Nashville now? Or where do you live? Yes, I live... Uh... Yeah, I live just outside of Nashville, only about fifteen minutes out of the city. Now, what made you? Well, you were always you grew up in the Philadelphia area. Yes. And now, what Sub, are they, suburbs? Suburbs like Upper Darby area. Okay. Just out, just outside of West Philly. And what about? I mean, we'll talk about your, your whole career, but what eventually made you want to leave that area? I mean, what? Because I know a lot of people have moved to Nashville, and it's supposed to be a, a beautiful area. And I heard, I heard it's getting more built up and crowded now. But what made you go to Nashville? Okay, first of all, I didn't want to leave Philly. <laughs> um, one by one, just everybody just kind of flocked to Nashville. Um, I think this was maybe late '90s. Late '90s, um, Cinderella wasn't doing so much for, I believe, about three years between '95 and '98. Uh, not so much, and Fred left South Jersey, came to Nashville, and opened a studio in uh, Hendersonville. He bought Conway Twitty's studio and just started a business, He's, you know. And uh, and then, I think it was, and then uh, Universal came along and asked us to do a, new, a song for a, a compilation CD, like a, a Greatest Hits. Uh, they were, they were, they started this thing of putting out old greatest hits or greatest hits of old ba older bands but adding a new track or two so they wanted to do that and they asked us if we would record a song or two so what we did was we came down to nashville and recorded at fred's studio okay it was this 98 and we had so much fun we hadn't been together in like three years we enjoyed it so much we decided hey why don't we go on tour we didn't have we didn't have management we didn't have uh, a label, label. We we had nothing. No booking agent. Nothing. And when we put it out there that we were going to go on tour, it was like uh, you know all that happened uh, before the tour even started. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I want to ask you. Okay. Yeah. Because I was just wondering. But I, we're we're around. So, this, what's that? So I. Well, the, the the thing is, I started coming here to work. I still lived in Philly, and uh, Tom moved. Uh, after 98, I think Tom moved down to Nashville like the very next year. A couple years later, Eric moved down here. 
And now I kept having to come to Nashville to work, to record, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to rehearse for uh, upcoming tours. And finally in 04, I took a gig uh, just for the summer uh, with Eric, uh, Eric's wife's band, Inga. It was called Naked Beggars. And uh, it was supposed to be for the summer, and it lasted three years. So basically, I was like, oh, well, I guess I live here now. Right. <laughs> I got to ask you, okay, now, when did you start playing music? We're the same age, and I want to see who some of your musical... Uh influences were when did you start when did you start getting into music were you i mean because i'd look you play a bunch of instruments were you always musically inclined or did you start later how did you get into it and was there people in your family that were musicians that you wanted to follow their path yeah my older brother jack um he played guitar he was a hippie you know he grew up in the 60s i grew up in the 60s just about five years behind him you know and uh he always you know he always had an extensive music collection. Back then it was albums and the giant, like lots of money put into the huge uh, um, stereo system that he had going, you know. And uh, he was my biggest influence. All the music that he listened to, um, I listened to. So as I got older, I started playing, I started dancing around. With, he, he would work after school. And I'd take out his guitar and, like, dance in front of a mirror to, like, Black Sabbath and Alice Cooper, you know. And uh, and finally, he called me a couple times, wasn't pleased. But uh, he finally showed me a few chords, put out some songbooks. Um, he gave me my first guitar. Like, he, like, every time he got a new guitar, he'd give me his old one, you know, and uh, showed me how to figure out songs for, from songbooks. I started playing acoustic guitar, sitting on the bed, you know, singing too. But yeah, it was it was, it was mostly learning. Uh, I learned the most at the beginning was from Black Sabbath because they're very classic chord progressions, and they made sense to me like mathematically in my brain. And uh, so yeah, he's he's the one that uh, he's the one that started that ball rolling. Now you you started playing, you started getting better and now when did you decide that this is what you wanted to do and when did you try to find to get together with a band because I know Philadelphia had a you know a, a good music scene there was different clubs in Philly back in the day when did you sit there and start saying I'm going to join a band I'm going to do this I mean when did that all happen well uh, junior high school um, junior high school was just, it was like a new it was like a it was like oh wow there's a little bit bigger of a world out there and then that's when I found other people that played. So, yeah, my first band was probably 7th or 8th grade. We didn't have a singer because nobody could afford a PA system and nobody could sing, but I found another guitar player. Uh, well, me and, my, me and my bass player, Andrew, um, uh, we took guitar lessons in grade school, but uh, he, he switched to bass. So me and him basically found other musicians to play with. Um, found another a guitar like I was I was a Zeppelin head like I knew every Zeppelin song so and and then I found another guitar player who was all about Hendrix so we hooked up with this drummer and this other guitar player and we just jammed we like I said we didn't have no singer but <laughs> I did all the Zeppelin solos and he did all the Hendrix solos you know but it wasn't like a decision it was just like let's play 
you know, like going outside and playing football. It was, you know, wasn't like I'm deciding to start a band. No, I just found other people to play with. And then from there, it just grew. You know, we, we found a singer and then other musicians and it just progressed, you know, into, you know, eventually, because I would move along too. You know, me and Andrew had several different bands through high school. And uh, after high school, lost a little touch. And I hooked up with this other group of kids that played this. Then we were doing like Maiden and Priest, you know. And uh, it just, I just progressed myself. Every, any, whenever a new opportunity came up or a better opportunity came up, I, I would take it. Okay, so which you, led, which led to Cinderella, right? Because you didn't, you don't want to be stagnant. A lot of times, guys will sit there and they'll get involved. I used to do stand-up comedy in Philadelphia, and you'd see that, you know, like some of us were like, you know, we gotta get out on the road. You know, I don't want to sit here and be doing MC gigs in Philly my whole life. But there were some people that were happy with doing that. But you seemed like you, you wanted to keep advancing and just getting better at your craft. Yeah, I wanted to move out of the basement. Right. You know, move move away from the you know sitting around doing bong hits all night, right. just jamming. <laughs> You know, I wanted to actually, you know, when when I got offered a gig from a band that worked, I was like, oh, oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I was like, wait, I don't, I can like do this in clubs. Like I can't just, you know, I was at that point, I was just playing in a basement, partying and, you know, playing the occasional keg party. Okay. So. <laughs> that was yeah in my high school because I grew up in Cherry Hill and uh, there'd be like one guy who played guitar this guy Mike Warren and he'd get a band together and they'd play a keg party and it was a big thing it was like oh my god you know there's a band at the keg party it was usually it's just a keg party with the you know their parents are their parents aren't home we have to keep it quiet but when there was a you know a, par- a parents allowed keg party and there's a band there yeah. it was a like, big thing yeah it was funny because we like in high school where I rehearsed I rehearsed in our singer's basement, and uh, and his his cousin. I was dating his cousin, who also lived with him, and they had the coolest mom. So we rehearsed there, and <laughs> <laughs> this is his name is Joe Tartaglia, but uh, and uh, we rehearsed there, and my girlfriend lived there, and he's my singer, and I was like, I pretty much lived there, so <laughs> she would let us have keg parties. <laughs> this is in high school, man. You know, we'd have keg par- keg parties in the basement and play and charge you know charge money. <laughs> uh, another thing we used to do is beef and beers. Okay, you know, somebody somebody <laughs> brought out a firehouse. That's a blast from the past. <laughs> funny. Yeah, it was always funny when you laugh. Beef and beer. It's like the most simple marketing. It's like just change the F and the R because you know back then graphic design wasn't as easy as then. You know, it is now, so it's like, okay, yeah, we can just put, we basically put beer in beer, but just change an F and put an R. <laughs> so, so you're playing along now. How did, how did you end up in Cinderella? What was the story behind that? Because, you know, it was, you know, you guys were along to go out for a little, for a long time, but how did you join that band? And, and I know you weren't one in the original band, but how did they find out about you? Um, I used to open for them in another band called Precious Metal. I got into this band, Precious Metal, because uh, they needed a guitar player and they heard of me or something. Precious Metal was started by Tony Harnell, the singer from uh, singer for TNT. Okay. 
So it, it was it was kind of an iconic band. It had been around a long time in South Jersey, and uh, a lot of different a lot of different South Jersey uh, musicians played in this band. Different different formats of this band, different players. But like, I joined the band, and I was like, oh, now I can play in this particular club circuit, which was like you were saying, the Galaxy in Somerdale, New Jersey. The Empire in uh, in Northeast Philly, you know. I was like, oh, this is cool. This was a new scene for me, you know. I was probably like 21, I think, 21, 22, something like that. And we got to open up for Cinderella a lot. Now, I was only in the band for a couple months, and uh, and word around the campfire, like first of all, first of all, opening for him, you know, it was awesome. And I would run upstairs, get get changed and run right back downstairs and stand right in front of them and like be taking notes and be saying, man, they'd be so much better if I was in that band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was that arrogant. I wasn't openly arrogant, but that's what I thought. I was like, Oh, what I could, what I could bring to this band. But anyway, you know, um, so word around the campfire was, you know, Cinderella's got a record deal. They were, they had been offered many record deals, but with like, really bad circumstances like I own you and you work for me and blah 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 you know and uh, so it was Polygram and and it was the same guy that signed Bon Jovi and but they only wanted to sign Tom and Eric they said oh you know you need a you need a better drummer and like a flashier guitar player you know a Jakey e. Lee type I was like Pfft. That's me. <laughs> I was like, I even know Jake. I think our moms hung out together. <laughs> that part's not true. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I was like, we're both we're both half Asian. And I was like, oh, that's totally me. So anyway, so Tom approaches me. He's like, so you heard what's going on? I said, absolutely. He said, do you want to audition? I was like, hell yeah. You know, so it was a lot of a lot of players from the area. Dave Sabo uh, from Skid Row, he auditioned. Uh, Reggie Wu. Reggie Wu went uh, to my high school. Oh my God, Reggie Wu's fantastic. He's, 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 a, an, he's an amazing guitar player. He lived in the neighborhood. Such a sweetheart. Yeah, he lived. In, he was a year older than me. In fact, his girlfriend now his wife. They've been together forever. She lived right around the corner from me. That's cool. We auditioned. We auditioned the same day, like. He sat and watched my audition. I sat and watched his audition, you know. But so that's that's how it came about. I had the, I also had the inside track because I had gone to school with with Tom's girlfriend, who eventually became his first wife, and Eric's first wife. <laughs> I went to school with both of them. So I even did I did sound for Tom's uh, first wife Emily. I did sound. She she was in a punk band, and uh, I did sound for them <laughs> in high school. <laughs> so I definitely had like I'm sure I had some, you know, the inside track on the gig. <laughs> so so you they they get the gig. How do they break it to you? Did they say okay, here's the gig, and then now once you get the gig, do you have to sit there and learn all the songs, or were you learning a bunch of them when you heard they might be needing someone? Well, uh, I learned, uh, he gave, Tom, I met Tom at a 7-Eleven. Um, turns out me and Tom lived like five minutes from each other and didn't even know it. But uh, 
but I met him at a 7-Eleven to give me cassette tape, believe it or not. <laughs> Back then, cassette tape of like 10 songs. He goes, just, he said, just learn five. They're demos, of course. He said, just learn five of them. And, uh, and uh, well, of course, I learned all 10. He said, you're going to audition, you know. He's like, oh, by the way, Reggie Wu is going to audition the same day. You want to go first or second? I was like, there's no way in hell. I'm following Reggie Wu. Right. I was like, I'll go first. I show up and Reggie's already there. I was like, oh, you asshole. <laughs> That's a joke. I was like, yeah, he's, like I told you, he's such a sweetheart. But he sat and watched, he sat right in front of me, watched my audition. I was like, holy crap. But uh, I was like, all right. So I pulled in, sat in the same chair watching his audition. But anyway, yeah, I learned, I learned all 10 songs. Um, he call, Tom called me back, I guess, in about a week. Not sure of the time period, but uh, he's like, um, I think we may have found we may have found a drummer because they were auditioning drummers too at the same time. And uh, he said, we may have found a drummer. Um, would you mind coming back and playing with him? I was like, sure. It was like, he said, did you learn the other five songs? I said, absolutely. So that's what happened. We played the other five songs with a drummer named Jim Dernick. And uh, at the end of the audition, they were like, well, how would you guys like being in this band? I was like, yeah, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so, that's, when they, so, that's when they hired us. So you get hired. Now, you didn't have a record. They didn't have a record deal in place yet. They were interested in Eric and Tom, but they wanted a better drummer and someone like you, a flashier guitarist. So now what happens once you guys join, you start playing gigs and the record producers and execs start coming out. How do you end up getting signed? Who, what happens? That's, that is how it all happened. It was like we, we started rehearsing together and then playing the same clubs. You know, we rehearsed at the Galaxy upstairs. So, you know, we just like moved downstairs. We just, you know, hump our gear down the steps. And, uh, and played every Saturday night. It was every Saturday night at midnight. So that's what we started doing, playing. Also also uh, writing and recording. This, there was a recording studio upstairs also. So it was definitely one-stop shopping, you know. And uh, so we did that for a little while. And then Derek Shulman came out. And, uh, you know, it was all pending his approval. And uh, he approved. <laughs> He approved. We continued to do that for another year, I believe, demoing uh, until they. Uh, I was only with the band, I think, about a year, and uh, and they put us in the studio. This is uh, 1985, I believe. 85, we went into the studio to record night songs. Now, what is it like, man? You know, you sit there. You know, you're playing, and it seems to be. You know, it happened pretty quickly for you in the fact that when you joined Cinderella, things started kicking in. What is it like for a bunch of young guys who have been busting their ass? As you said, you know, you're re recording upstairs, you're rehearsing, you're, 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 you know, then playing gigs. What is it like when you finally get this recording contract and you have to go in the studio? Are you sitting there? Are you excited? In the back of your mind, are you saying, man, I hope we don't screw up? I mean, what goes through your <laughs> mind? Cause, and you guys are young. I mean, you know, you face it. It's like, you know, I mean, I always think, you know, when we're 22, 23, 24, 25, we, right. all, we all have a little bit of attitude, you know, we, we feel invincible. I mean, <laughs> what, 
<laughs> what, what's, what was it like when you guys went in the studio? And, and was it hard to sit there, you know, and be told that doesn't sound right or this doesn't sound right? It was very exciting, and it was it was it was a lot of fun. You know, I just I you know I had developed this new family um, over the past year, and then we all get to travel somewhere together and play music, and you know all the songs were written. Uh, but then we start working with a producer that knows way better than us, and it's it's a learning experience. It's exciting. It's fun. It's hard work. It's long hours. You know, it, it, it's all the above, really. It just, it, it, it was, I, I guess that's the best way I can explain it. Now, now, what was it like when you guys were shooting the videos then? Because videos, you know, I always tell people, you know, I mean, I'm an MTV generation guy, and videos were so <laughs> important, and everyone, you know, like I had the guy from the Flock of Seagulls on, and he told me how when they shot their first video, like they was like they were just like here, you know. It was like, there was like no budget at all. How was it for your guys' videos? Because you were somewhat of an unknown band, but you guys had the good look. I mean, how did they put the videos together? Did, were you involved in them, or they just said we're shooting this video for this song? Here's what we're gonna do: show up and kick ass. Well, they basically, I guess, they hire a video company, get a producer, get a director, get somebody to write a storyline. Um. We weren't involved in any of that, but we had approval. You know, they, they you know, there were directors and producers that are, the the company that they hired. These people will, like came to us with storyboards and and talked about you know what they had in mind, and we could say yes or no or oh that's you know you know they were coming up with cool stuff and and it's basically all. <laughs> It was all playing off the name Cinderella, so they came up with, the, you know, the, the evil stepsisters and, you know, the whole thing, which lasted for three videos. <laughs> now, when the album comes out, because it ended up selling very well, what were your guys' expectations? And were you just sitting there thinking, it's going to come out, we're going to tour, we're going to get more fans? What were your expectations? And then did you think it would sell as much as it did? And were you also happy with all the tracks on the album, or were there some that the record company said, "Now you got to put that on," and you guys are like, "Oh Christ, not that one. We want something different." Well, I'll tell you, the record label didn't interfere at all. I mean, they were really great to us the whole time. I mean, here's an example: was we had a budget. I don't know. We had a budget of a small budget. We're a new band. I think they gave us a budget of like fifty grand or something. So, you know, after <laughs> every, like, every month or so, I mean, we took, like, five, five or six months to make this record. So, every month or so, <laughs> maybe every two months, we have to go to the record label and ask for more money. <laughs> I think the record ended up, ended up costing us, like, $265,000. But every time we had to ask for more money... It was pending approval of what we were doing, so they, they, somebody would come down from the label, usually Derek Shulman, but you know they had to like what we were doing, and I don't believe we had any negative feedback. Um, they always loved what we were doing, and then said, "Okay, here's some more money." Now, 
that's the best way to go. I mean, they always hear right? horror stories, you know, here. So now, now you, the album starts selling. Now, you were playing places like the Empire and the Galaxy. When do you start touring? I know you open for like some bands, big bands. When do you start touring on a, on a grandiose scale where you're playing cities and overseas? Was that right after the album or how long after the album did that start? Um, after we were done recording the record, we, we continued because it takes a little time to actually put it out, you know, press it, artwork, uh, marketing, tour planning. It, it, you know, it took a few months after we were done recording. So we just went back to playing the same two clubs. (laughs) (laughs) We played the galaxy every Saturday night and we played the, the empire, uh, twice a month. So we only did six, six shows a month. But uh, but we were finally um, able to make a living at not make a living, but we were put on a salary, you know. And the salary was like small. It wasn't like you know we took a huge advance. All the money, all the advance money was for the recording of the record, and uh, we only took as far as salaries for ourselves, so we didn't have to work. We only took what we were making at our previous job. Okay. I was an auto detailer. I was making 125 hours a week, you know, and that's all I was making during the recording of the record until we toured, you know. So, so yeah. Um, um, wait, what was the question? No, well, who was the, who was the tour? <laughs> I mean, you were playing those clubs. Oh, 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 How long oh, ago? So what, oh, that's right. Well, so we went back to you know playing the clubs until until uh, Polygram arranged a tour for us, Mercury Polygram, and they came up with. Uh, they came up with a um, uh, open it up for loudness, so we would fly out to the West Coast, uh, and uh, and I, I I was a huge fan of, fan of loudness at the time, you know, being from my uh, from my mother's country and all, <laughs> but uh, that was awesome. That was, that was a dream come true. I was like, holy crap, really. So we just we did like auditoriums and and small theaters. How do you that get kind of thing. how do you get used and, to but that? But you know what was, was funny about that is it was Poison's first tour also. So us and Poison came out at the same time on like two op, uh, on opposite ends of the country, but came together to open up <laughs> for a Japanese heavy metal band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we started and then we kind of like flip flopped. Us and Poison, we flipped, I guess depending on what what city we were in, like we opened, then Poison would open, then we opened, Poison would open. So we did this for about two weeks, and David Lee Roth had just put out Eat Him and Smile, his first solo record away from, away from Van Halen. And uh, both Us and Poison were up for the opening slot, and, uh, and we got it. So we did that tour... That was our first of many tours with Poison. <laughs> we did that tour only for about two weeks, and then we were thrust onto arena stages for five months. Now, what's that? Five months, five months with David Lee Roth, then another seven months with Bon Jovi on the Slippery One Wet tour. So what's that like, man? Because you guys go, as you said, you're playing The Empire and The Galaxy, and listeners, The Galaxy wasn't a big place. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was, it's a legendary rock club. That's, I think it's now, it's a... Uh, like a veterinarian or something. I think whatever it's, it's gone. Like like I was back because my girlfriend. I grew up in New Jersey, but I was 
bicoastal for two years, about a few years ago. And I remember we drove by and I'm like, oh my God, that was a galaxy. And it's like some like, now you're like, what the hell, what the hell happened, man? Keep, keep a, you know, a landmark of rock and roll. But what was it like? Because you're sitting there and you're going from playing these clubs to auditoriums and people who dig the music because, you know, David Lee Roth and Bon Jovi. What was it like for you guys when you when you just started jamming? Was it like a dream come true? And did you really get into I mean, did that crowd feed your performances? Because I'm sure you, you guys are on stage. You're glammed out. You look great. I mean, it must have been it must have been an amazing feeling. Well, you you pretty much put all the answers in your question. <laughs> it was all that, man. It was all that in the bag of chips, man. It was like, wow, we get to do this in front of more people. Uh, what we already enjoy doing, you know, it's nothing like it. You know, making a record is kind of hard and it takes a lot of attention and detail and long hours. It's, it's the work part, you know, Playing live in front of an audience is the payoff, you know. That's just like you said. It's like, you know, it's it's a dream come true, you know. And the bigger the crowd, yeah, the more I feed off of it. Absolutely. Now, now, where did you guys find your clothes? Like, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, we always sat there. You like, you look so cool in the video. And you know, I, I was I was in that stage where I like I like the metal and I like. You know, the Duran Duran. But, you know, you couldn't find that crap at Macy's or Wanamaker's. <laughs> and, and you guys, I mean, was there a circus? Because I always wonder, like, where would you find your clothes? Because you couldn't find that stuff on South Street. I mean, would you guys have people make your clothes? I mean, because you guys always had that special metal look. And even your hats were cool. Like, if you wore hats. <laughs> like, we had, like, if, back then, if, if, if I wore a cowboy hat, I'd look like a redneck. It'd be like a Stetson. <laughs> Where did you guys find your clothes? Because in your videos, you're always decked out. You got the ruffled shirt. You got the long... Where would you guys get your clothes? I was wondering, where do heavy metal guys get their clothes at? Well, you, you got to understand that before we're rock stars, we're getting our clothes at the mall. Right. <laughs> you know? We're taking, like, girls' clothes and cutting them up. You know, I used to get my spandex from a, a store called Danskin. Okay, I remember that place. <laughs> you know, and I'd like, you know, I we like we would doctor them up. Like what you see on the first record cover on Nice Songs is stuff that we bought ourselves, found on South Street, or or like girls' clothes in a thrift store. You know, just piece stuff together. You know, and uh, so the first video also was the same. It was all stuff that we scrounged up from our little sisters, <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, or you know, like like you said, like the, the you know the uh, a store on South Street or something. Uh, but this is before Hot Topic, of right. course. But <laughs> but by the I think by the second video, we had a clothes designer. You know, we were still trying to find our way, but. I think uh, the Save Me video, it's it's got live clips. I think by that time, I'm not sure. Some of that stuff might have been store bought, you know, and just raggedy, you know, kind of like shredded rags, pieces of your T-shirt, like the pieces that you cut out of your T-shirt, you tile on your arms, <laughs> legs, stuff like that. But then 
third uh, third video, I think, was... Uh, oh, Nobody's Fool was the second video, right? I don't know. Um, Nobody's Fool. Then we had, like, clothes that was... Some clothes that was made by a designer. We, we found this... Uh, we found this girl in L.A. named Jackie King, and and she's she continued to make our clothes most throughout most of our career. Now the first album did very well. Mm-hmm. It hit number three, I believe. I mean, it just started. What do you? What do you? And it started selling. And it was it was multi platinum or uh, that ended up selling three million. So what is that like when all of a sudden you have this record? You guys are, it's your first album, and they start, it starts selling and selling. What's going through your mind? Because all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, we are bonafide rock stars. Our album is sold a lot. What goes through someone's mind? Do you start thinking about the follow-up record and thinking if you can top that? Or do you sort of just kick back and go for the ride? Oh, um, well, first of all, I didn't really know that until I got my first royalty check. (laughs) I was like, you know, because we were we were on tour, having a blast, making more money than we made at our day jobs. But you know, not we were making a fortune. We were making a good living now. But I didn't realize because because there was a payroll and there was a budget. Okay, but I got my first royalty check, and I was like, holy shit! Right. <laughs> um, the first thing I did was bought, I bought my mom a car. I was like, my mom never owned a new car. What'd you get her? I, well, she picked out like some, I forget what it was, Ford Fairmont. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even make them anymore. But <laughs> it was a car that she picked out, you know? I was like, and, and it, it, she was thrilled about it, and I was glad to give back to my family and stuff. But that's when I was like, Wow. This could be pretty good. I didn't start thinking about the follow-up then, but yeah, once once the tour was over and like we had we had gone triple platinum, yeah, that's when you start thinking about the next record and what you're going to do and what what you're going to do that's new. You know, Tom being the main songwriter and all, well, most of the pressure or maybe not even pressure is responsibility was on him. You know, so, so yeah, I didn't really think that it was pressure until, until maybe the third record. Okay. (laughs) When the third record didn't sell as much as the first or second, that's when I was like, oh. (laughs) Now, now when you go in for that second one, though, after the first one being so popular and you start recording it, is there a little bit of cockiness because you're like, hey, you know, we're coming off this multi-platinum album, triple platinum album, you know, we're making money, we're touring. I mean, was there a little bit of bravado, like, hey, you know what, we're, this, we're, we're happening. I mean, was there, or were you guys all pretty down to earth? I think we're all pretty down to earth. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe a little more cocky. I don't know about cocky. I think maybe a little more confident. I think that's a better way to put it. You know, our first record, we were like learning from Andy John. As a producer, you know he's telling us what to do, and he's telling telling us how you know what we do well and what we suck at, you know. So it was like, ooh, really? What? So the second record, same producer, we knew him better. We were way more experienced. 
Um, he made me a way better guitar player. So, yeah, more confident, not, not so much cocky. But uh, we, I think we knew, we absolutely knew a little bit more about what we were doing. Now, when the second, when the second album came out, were you starting to headline your tours or were you opening or what was, where was your position in the, the food order? Um, the first two months, I can't remember what order this came in, but we did two months with ACDC and then two months with Judas Priest. I don't remember which one came first, but then we started headlining. We put our first headlining tour together with, uh, with uh, two new bands at the time, brand new bands at the time, was Winger and Bullet Boys. Okay. Now, what what is it like when you open for like Maiden? Because you know you had listened to that. I mean, not Maiden, uh, Judas Priest. Like you had listened to them as you know when you were younger. What is it like when you sit there and you're actually opening for them and getting to know them? What's that feeling? Is it sort of like surreal? Like, man, I used to play this stuff in the basement. Well, yeah, it's thrilling first of all, but even more, even beyond that, it's a learning experience. You always look. You always learn from the people that you open for, or I did. You know, I always took notes, metal notes. You know, opening for Roth. You know, I was like, "Ooh, this is how it's done." You know, opening for Bon Jovi, I hung out with John. Uh, uh, I, I hung out with Richie a lot, and his and his guitar tech. Like I'd would be down like underneath underneath the stage watching from Richie's. Uh, you know, you know the ego ramps that go on the, up the sides. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, there's steps that go down under those too, and that's where like the guitar, uh, the guitar tech is, where all the guitars and the cooler and the, and the drugs and every now and then a naked chick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is what I learned from Richie. Well, there you go. As <laughs> how to make that your own little home. Like in between songs, you know, and his and his guitar tech. So every 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 tour, you open for somebody, and they've been doing it a long time. You're like, oh yeah, I get it. This is this is what I do. So basically, I had I modeled my offstage area after Richie Sambora. You know, this is what you do. I was like, I get it, and this is what everybody does. But, but as far as like Priest and ACDC, you're just watching them on stage, going, "Oh my God, I should, I need to be that good." Okay. You know, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it just the seasoned professionalism. You know, and I'll tell you, the coolest thing I learned about Priest is their endings, <laughs> and the 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 way they end songs. You know, they always end a song with a chord that lasts this long. It goes, <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but you know, you can, even after a bash out, <laughs> no, they like, <laughs> and now, it ends on an upbeat. What? And the, and now, the light, and the light man is. Dead on. <laughs> the, the light man for Priest would be dead dead on every single hit and every single ending. And it was like it was like he was part of this. It was like he was part of the band. That's how tight the light guy was for Priest. Now, now you guys, you guys played the Spectrum, I'm sure. 
Uh, yeah, on our on our first two tours. Now, what's um, what's that like? Yeah, no, yeah. With uh, with Roth, we sold out two shows, and with Bon Jovi, we sold out four. Now that must be a great feeling because you know you know you're from Upper Darby, you know, and mm-hmm. the, and the closest thing you know the Tower Theater is in Upper Darby, but. Uh, what was it like playing this? Like you're playing your hometown and you're playing in a legendary and still legendary, even though it's gone. What is the feeling when you're going on stage at the Spectrum? Well, once I got on stage, it was it was thrilling. The, the idea of it was thrilling. The idea of it all was like, I can't believe I'm going to play there. But in actuality, it was hectic as shit. You know, um, two shows, two shows with David Lee Roth. I, I had to buy 50 tickets for each show <laughs> for my family and friends. And then dealing with the guest list and calls from people like, you know, just wanting tickets and, you know, trying to accommodate everybody was a fucking hassle. Right. You know, <laughs> and it was a real fucking headache. But I was thrilled to do it because I wanted these people to see me. On the, on the spectrum stage, you know? And I went through the same thing with Bon Jovi. 50 tickets each of four shows I bought, you know? So, yeah, real hectic. And even one of the shows, I don't remember which show it was, even one of the shows, like, my guitars didn't work, and it was, you know, it was a fucking nightmare. You know, one of the shows, one of the six, anyway... Like my acoustic guitar broke or didn't work, and I fucking kicked it over because <laughs> I put an acoustic guitar on a stand, you know, so I can just pull in behind it and play with an electric guitar on my body, you know, and it like cutting in and out, and I just got so pissed I fucking kicked it like right down into the pit, you know. So it was it's pretty fucking hectic, but at the same time thrilling. <laughs> now your your third album. Uh, did well, but didn't Tom have uh, voice problems after that? Um, not real sure when he started having problems, but yeah, at, at that timing, sounds right. I mean, he didn't have any voice problems through the recording uh, of of Heartbreak Station, but <coughs> but uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I, you know, my timeline is a little off. <laughs> right. But what's, what's that like when he starts having voice problems? Like, that's the band. You know, you guys are a band. You're a group of four. I mean, what, what's going through all your minds? It's scary. It's, it's definitely scary because, you know, the first time he had, you know, the first time he had to cancel, we had to cancel a show because he couldn't sing, you know, let alone talk, you know. Yeah, it was scary. I was like, oh, shit, well, what do we do now? What's this going to cost us? Are we going to be able to make it up? Is Tom going to be all right, first of all? You know, so, you know, and you hear, I mean, throughout history, you hear about people, you know, have, uh, singers having to have uh, s- surgery on their throat. You always hear about uh, nodes, or at least I did. I always heard you know, about singers... They always eventually, um, <clears throat> they always eventually get nodes, which are uh, like calluses on their vocal cords, and uh, or their and um, this wasn't Tom's problem though. Um, Tom had a 
think at one at one time he developed a cyst on one of his vocal cords. So yeah, he's had to have a few surgeries. <clears throat> so he then he comes back and he record another album. I, I still call them albums. That's the one thing I always do. And uh, how was that? How was that? How did that come across to the listeners? Still climbing? Yeah. It didn't come across to listeners. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I mean, at that, at that point, at that point, we were forgotten. We were forgotten at, at Mercury Polygram. Mercury Polygram got into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of, all kinds of legal trouble, and, uh, and had a clean house. And there was nobody there on our team. And it was the early 90s, so everybody's about grunge and recording this record at, at that time. And, and by the time we had finished that record, the whole climate of music had changed and we were pretty much, you know, forgotten, forgotten at Polygram. <clears throat> So what do you do to be resilient? I mean, you guys are musicians. This is what you know. You know, I mean, it's something that, you know, you're musicians. You guys had cool clothes made for you. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, what, what, then what goes through your mind? Because it's like, you know, your product's still good and you know, people will listen because you have, I mean, I, you know, I still listen to Cinderella. I love Cinderella, but you know, what goes through your mind because it's like, is it sort of like an athlete? Because you were all young guys. Yeah, I guess. I guess you could you could uh, you could compare it to being an athlete on the downside of his career. You know, um, because you know when we toured when we toured still climbing, we met, went back to playing clubs. I mean, there are big clubs, you know, but uh, you know, like con- club concert venues. You know, like House of Blues and stuff like that. Or, but, uh, yeah, I was like, okay, well, this is the downside. You know, I didn't know how much longer it would last because, and, and you know, personally, I was going through hardships as well. You know, drugs, bad marriage, failed marriage, that, that kind of stuff. And, and it was the 90s and, you know, bad drugs were happening so, and also being on the downside, I was like, okay, well, I might as well have fun with it. And, uh, and that's, that's around the time, like, I, like when I told you earlier that Cinderella hadn't done anything from 95 to like 98, that was it. That was 95. That was our last tour. Uh, uh, at, at that point, it was our last tour uh, before we got back together in 98. Now, when you get back... I thought, I thought it was over. I, at that point, I thought, okay, I thought it was over. So you thought Cinderella was done. You don't know what you're going to do now. You're just, you have no idea, and you're, you're probably shitting yourself. Somewhere around there, me and my brother opened a pizza shop. Where at? <laughs> in Upper Diary. Okay. Was it good pie, man? You can't get good pie in L.A. That's one thing I'm happy about moving back east, the good pizza. Oh, yeah, it was good pizza. Absolutely. What was the name of it? Bada Bing. But, oh, man, seeing that the Sopranos ripped you off. You should oh, sue no. those bastards. No, I think, no, Sopranos was already out. Okay. <laughs> I think we ripped them off. Bada Bing Pizzeria. So, so what's it like then when you're sitting there, you know, you guys went, went 
eventually got back together. But what's it like when all of a sudden, you know, you, you have to work, but is it just something, is your life is completely different, but were you happy or were you still partying a lot or what, where was your mind frame? Well, I wasn't, I think I, my partying ended probably a year after, um, after the still climbing tour ended because it got real bad and then I had to do a rehab. Okay. So, so yeah, around 96, in 96, I got clean and, um, and like I said, I can't, so, so my, I told you my timeline is off, but right. somewhere around there, um, me and my brother did that pizza shop. And then I told you earlier that, uh, 98, we got a call and it was like, Oh, you mean I, could, I can do this again? <laughs> and we started working. We started working on a new record. We started, you know, demoing. Went back on a tour. Started started this whole thing with Poison. <laughs> We'd go on tour with each other every two years. <clears throat> that was fun. Now, now, and I'm sure the fans were loving it because, you know, we're all, you know, the, the difference I always say is, you know, when you go, like I'm a big Springsteen fan. When you go to a Springsteen concert, there's a bunch of people our age. You know, of course, Springsteen has a lot more accountants and lawyers. When you go to like, you know, a metal concert, <laughs> you know, like if you guys are touring, you know, there's women, but they're still, you know, they're still wearing the real tight spandex, some of them, which they shouldn't be, but they do. <laughs> but I mean, it must have been great to get back on stage and, you know, because it must have shown the appreciation of your fans. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it was, it was totally cool. It was, it was I guess, uh, early 2000s. Um, I think 2000 uh, may have been the first of the next few tours with Poison and you know, with with other bands sprinkled in there, like uh, we we did uh, Firehouse and Dockin and and Slaughter and Faster Pussycat and you know all these bands sprinkled in throughout these different tours with us and Poison, and we did one we did one ourselves too without Poison. You know, like I said, every two years maybe uh, we may have done a few. But yeah, that was so, it was so much fun. And yeah, the, the, you know, the fans coming out was like it was like a resurgence. You know, everybody kept telling, "Oh, he's making a comeback." You know, and I still hear that. <laughs> I still hear people, "Oh, 80s is making a comeback." I was like, "That comeback was in 2000." Hey, you know, <laughs> you'd be surprised, man. There's these 80s concerts in LA that sell out, dude. It's it's uh, it's amazing. Now, you also in the last few years you recorded a solo album, right? Yes, I did. Now, what made you want to do that? And what's that like different from being with a band? You said Tom wrote a lot of the songs. When you wrote the solo album, what made you decide to want to record your own solo album? And what was the process? Well, it was something I've always threatened to, threatened to do. <laughs> it's like I always like threatening to my manager and, and my wife and my son, and you know, that kind of thing. I was like, oh, one of these days, I'm going to make a solo record. It's going to be heavy, and and I'm going to play all the instruments, and I'm going to produce it. Now, finally, uh, our tour manager, Larry, um, the last tour Cinderella did, I believe, was 2013. And uh, at the end of the tour, Larry came to me and said, look, Tom didn't want anybody else to know this yet until the tour was over. 
but he's he's putting out a solo record. Like he had kept the secret. He said, but he said he didn't want to distract. Like he didn't want to do any interviews about it. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want anybody to talk about it until the Cinderella tour was over, so it didn't distract from the band. But like I mean, I remember just getting off the bus the morning after the last show and Larry taking me aside and telling me this. He goes, yeah, he didn't want anybody to know till this was over and so now you have to make your solo record. I'm like, wait, what? He said, yeah, this is, this is you've been threatening to do this for so long now. So Larry and my wife, Debbie, are the ones that pushed me. I mean, <laughs> it's like, because I was ready to come home and take a nap for a week. Right. They're like, nope. I already had all the songs written. So the songs were already there. They were already demoed and everything. So I just had to re... I basically just had to duplicate them and play them better and sing them. And some of them didn't have lyrics. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'd come up with lyrics for some of them, you know. But, uh, yeah, it was, and after that, it was, it was my wife, my wife, Debbie, that pushed me. And uh, as far as the process, it was just, it was, it was, a, it was work. Like I always say about studio work, it was, it was hard work. And, but it was, it was fun for me and my engineer, uh, my engineer is Ronnie Honeycutt. And uh, we just had a blast working together and it was just the two of us. Um, I hired drummers and, uh, and, uh, uh, this one drummer in particular, Christopher Williams, just unbelievable. He plays with Accept now. That tells you how good he is. Um, working with him was a blast. I worked with Troy Lucetta. Oh, Troy's going to be on my... Troy, I just Troy, talked to Troy on the phone. He's going to be on my show next week, I think. Oh, cool. Yeah, Troy lives around here. I just ran into him at Walmart a couple weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> I swear to God. True story. <laughs> but uh, I record... Yeah, I went up to his studio... Uh, and uh, he, he actually recorded the first song. And then Fred, I sent it out to Fred. The first song's called No Strings. And I sent it out to Fred in L.A., and he mixed it for me. So I actually made a video for that. You can, you can see it on YouTube. Just Jeff Labar, No Strings. Okay. You know? Coincidentally, I mean, it has nothing to do with guitar strings. So right. <laughs> my, my first solo song's called No Strings. I'm like, wait, you're a guitar player, aren't you? <laughs> so yeah the record's called one for the road it, it's an ep that uh rat pack like when when larry took me aside said now's the time and i by the way i have a record deal for you at uh rat pack you know i was like oh oh shit then i guess i have to do this now now will you do another one do you think i don't know <laughs> i haven't picked up a guitar in so long you know, every now and then I do studio work around here, like friends or, or, or some people like ask me to, you know, cut a demo for them or whatever. But that's that's about it. That's I don't, you know, I'm, I'm really concentrating on um, being, um, I'm going to the Art Institute uh, here in Nashville for culinary, uh, a culinary associate's degree program. So I've been concentrating on that, man. It's not just cooking, but I got to take like, general education classes too like English and math I had to take psych oh wow 
Well, I'm going to tell you. you. I'm going to tell you. You know, and I started working as a cook, too. So, you know, I've been doing that. Um, I play every now and then. Um, not doing not doing it for a living anymore. But uh, every now and then somebody offers me, you know, gives me an offer I can't refuse. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so you're becoming a chef. Now, why, why do I have a feeling with your backstory, why do I have a, a, a feeling in the back of the mind that you're either going to end up in the next two years, you're going to be on Hell's Kitchen or Chopped? I'm telling you, you should get on, you should get on Celebrity Chopped, or you should just get on Chopped because you have yeah. the perfect backstory. And would you ever do Hell's Kitchen, or is it just too crazy? No, I, well, I, I watched some of those shows, the competition cooking shows. I, there, there's no way I could hold up. Okay, you know, I'm a good cook, but on, under pressure, you know, I tend to cut my fingers. Right. <laughs> you, know, like, you know how many times I've had to I bled. Right. in class <laughs> but yeah under pressure is tough man you know I, I'm, I'm gonna need you know I've been working as a cook for about two years now uh, low pressure but uh, I mean you still you just gotta make the food fast but it's nothing fancy though you know the fancy stuff I'm learning in, in culinary school now and that's you know making sauces and and and, and food intricate food dishes from around the world. So I'm learning that now, but in the meantime, working as a basic cook. Okay. Well, man, you know, I, I'm glad we got in touch. I'm glad you came on. I know you're busy with school on Mondays and Tuesdays. And, uh, and yeah, I was just going through my Facebook, and I always send people out, you know, messages. And you got back to me. It was great. Now, now, wh where can we find your solo album? Uh, you can either get it at ratpack.com. Uh, or my website is jefflabar.com. If you go to my website, jefflabar.com, I'll put together what's what we call La Bundle. Now, my wife started my wife started this thing by putting La in front of everything. Okay. You know, my 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 La TV. It's it's my my La drink, uh, my La phone. <laughs> you know, so so we I, I offer a La Bundle uh, for pretty cheap. It's a it's a, it's an autograph CD, an autograph eight by ten, and uh, and a, a couple of signature guitar picks. Cool, man. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on. So, people, go look them up. Go go on on YouTube. No strings attached. Watch that video. No, no, no. Wait. Not no strings. Right. It's no strings. No strings. All right. No strings. <laughs> no, no, no strings attached. Well, it got me confused because I thought you could play guitar <laughs> with no strings. So, people, check them out. Jeff Labar, and it's spelled, you know, you can go, it's L-A-B-A-R, exactly how it sounds, but I know people screw up. So people do that. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. I'm at Cooper Talk. I tweet all the time. You can tweet me there. Also, go to coopertalk.net. I have over 590 episodes up there. Uh, you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. Um, Instagram, Words with Friends, Cooper Talk One. And on Instagram, you see a lot of stuff about my show and a lot of pictures of food, because you remember when I had that heart problem, I wrote a cookbook. So you can go see pictures of that, and you go to my other stop, uh, my other website, stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures of the food to an attempt date, you guys. It's cooking for what? It's cooking for a guy. No major list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. I have no cumin in the recipes. So you can get there. You can get it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com, which people are doing instead of getting it from me. And if you buy it from me, I make more money. Plus, I'm moving. I'm moving in two months. I have like... 
60 books I have to get rid of. So go to StopTheSalt.com and get that. So please do that. Go to, go to Jeff's website. Keep listening to the Cooper Talk. Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.